And Jesus tells the story of a, a father standing on the porch watching. Maybe the days when that son who's lost and dead is going to come home. And I don't know about you, but I've been the younger brother in the story and I've been the older brother in the story. But it's not, it's not a story about the younger son or the older son. It's a story about the father. And when he comes to his senses, he comes home and he doesn't feel worthy to be a son anymore. So he just wants to be an employee. See, when you live in sin and you live dumb, you forget what's true. You get turned around. You don't have to be worthy to be a son. You just have to be born into the family. That makes you a son because of who you're born to. If you're born again, we're sons and daughters of the Most High. So act like who you are. Don't be an actor. Be who you are. I tell my grandsons, always be Whoever you are, be who you are. Be what you are. Unless you're Batman, then always be Batman. Be who you are. We're children of God. He has bought us with the Son's blood. Jesus, the unique one, as it says, in the Greek, the monogenes, the only begotten. There's no other like him. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am I will sing of the goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And all God's people said, Amen. As I was walking up here, I saw a spider, and I was reminded of the words of God to take dominion. <laughs> Just trying to be obedient. We doing okay? We hanging in there? All right, let's open God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first five verses. The title of this morning's message is Men, No More Excuses. First Corinthians chapter 2, I'll read it to you. I'll be reading from the ESV. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Father, I ask that no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much we kick and scream, you would never let us be out of your will. No matter how uncomfortable the surgery is, we, we never raise our finger to you and accuse you of wrong as the great physician, as the potter, as the ruler of all of mankind and the creator of every creature. We ask that we would get a glimpse of you knowing that if we see you for who you are, we would get past the man in the mirror. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I teach for a living. At one point, I was teaching five days a week, three hours a day at a Bible college. Did that for several years. And if I could be transparent with you, it, it really really is not easy for me. That, that, that is not hyperbole. That is not justified exaggeration. It is not easy for me to carry a conversation with people. That, that is hard. I, I want you to recognize that. I want you to see that because that is pivotal for you to understand our text here this morning. I had breakfast sat at a table with a couple guys, and I was transparent with them. I went back to my room, and I immediately took off my shirt that was drenched in sweat. I would much rather lick the inner lining of a Tibetan yak's ulcerated small intestine or gargle turtle vomit or feast on marinated wombat eyelids than stand in front of people. I really would. And there was a great season of my life when you have to understand, so I attended 14 different schools over the course of my life, right? I was a senior in high school when I found out there was no Santa Claus. A senior in high school. I had no friends. We had no television. We had no money. Where do you learn these things? 
I'm being transparent, right? Talking about being out of touch. So my best friends were books. But they weren't books that everybody else was reading. I never went fishing with my dad. I don't know how to change the oil in my car. I don't know how to change a tire on a vehicle. I don't know how to do any of these things that you guys are so manly. You guys know how to do these things. Listen, I know one thing. I know the word of God. This is what I know. And I've prepared 30 years for this message. The outflow is the overflow. I just simply come up here and I just throw up. That's what I do. And there was a big season in my life. After I was married, I would go inside my room with the lights off. And it would come time for dinner, and my wife or one of my five kids, they would come and they would bring me food into my room. And it would be dark in the room, and they'd say, Dad, here's your dinner. And then they would walk away, and I would eat food in the dark. I love my family, but it's hard for me to be around people. That is a clear glimpse of me. So when I say it's hard for me to be around people, I'm not exaggerating. It is difficult. My hand is sweating. I wear special T-shirts called Thompson Tees that have built-in diapers under the armpits that gather my sweat. Can I be transparent with you? Right? Moses was filled with excuse after excuse why he was not the man commissioned by God to go before Pharaoh and the Jewish elders and say, let my people go. Who am I, Lord? Who am I? They will not listen to me. Moses forgot the promise of God in Exodus 3.8 when he says, I have come down to deliver them. You see, it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about God in you, the hope of glory. And here's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, hey, listen, Corinth, church, when I was with you, I'm going to give you a little transparency into my life. I was with you, and I did not have lofty speech. I didn't have human wisdom that was going to bedazzle you. I had weakness, I had fear, and I had much trembling, where I think I threw up in the back of my throat sort of timidity. Paul? Yeah. The author of one-third of the New Testament is saying, man, if you were to get a glimpse at me, I did not have it all together. And church history would tell us. When one was referring to another, how do we know who the Apostle Paul is when he enters into the town? And this was the news that was given to him. You will know that it is Paul because he's a short, stubby, bow-legged, mono-browed individual with a lisp. Whether that's true or not, that's what church history teaches. It was said of Jesus that he had nothing desirous that we should behold him. Isaiah 52, 53 tells us. Jesus? 
And at the time of his crucifixion, when he had the beard ripped out of his face, it says you could hardly tell that he was even a man. I went with my uh, oldest daughter, who was six years old at the time. I, I took her on a special daddy-daughter date. Right? I mean, life is quick. I have five kids. Three boys, two girls. Three thorns, two rose petals. And I took the oldest rose petal out for a, a nice daddy-daughter date, and I wanted to take her to someplace a little nicer than where I normally would take her, so I, I took her to Wendy's. And as we're looking up at the dollar value menu items, there were a group of college-age students that came on into that fine establishment, and I mustered up the courage, asking them, why are you dressed so nice? And they said, we just came from a mock trial. You see, we're all studying to be lawyers, and we travel around the United States engaging people in debates. Now, I have a television show that goes to 195 countries every week. I debate for a living. I study your worldview. I study the truth. I study counterfeits. And when they said that they debate, you can imagine what I thought, what I said. I looked at them and I said, you debate for a living? Yep. And as if he was gazing into my soul, he said, we will debate anybody on any subject at any time and in any place. So I looked at him and I said, good luck with that. And I walked away. Because it's hard for me to be in front of people. But as we sat there dipping our fries into our Frosty, my little girl Ella looked at me and said, Daddy, I'm enjoying this time with you, but don't you think you should go share the gospel with them? I said, Peanut, you best just shut your mouth. <laughs> and then one of them had blasphemed really loud. And my daughter said, Daddy, you have to go share the gospel with them now. At least go give them gospel tracts. I said, Honey, there's a lot of them, and I don't think I have enough for all of them. She said, That's okay, Daddy. I have enough inside the van. So we make our way out to the van. We grab the gospel tracks. And I said, Dad, you know how nervous Daddy gets. I think we should pray. And she said, Daddy, there's a time to pray and there's a time to move. So I smacked her. <laughs> My little homeschooled princess. We grab the gospel tracks. We make our way on into the restaurant, I go over to the corner where they're at, and I said, hey, listen, my little girl, Ella, El where did she go? <laughs> Baby, what you doing under the table? And she was under the table, and she was nervous, but she knew what needed to take place. And she said something to me that I've said to her her whole life. You can do it with God's help. It's not about you, Daddy. So I said, hey, listen, I have a million-dollar bill gospel track for every one of you that are part of this debate team. 
Listen, what's a gospel track? On the other side, there's a Christian message. It tells you how you can avoid hell, come into a relationship with your maker, and go to heaven. You don't have to take it, but there is enough for everybody. Would you like to have one? I started to hand them out. And before I knew it, I had something come out of my mouth that did not originate in my brain. I don't know if you've had one of those moments, because as quickly as it came out, I tried to shove it back from whence it came. Who's the head of your debate team? Would you like to debate? I did not just say that. And they pointed over to this girl named Dakota. She just levitated over everybody. Came down in the midst. She said, what do you want to debate? I said, well, I'm a Christian. I believe that Christianity is intelligent. She's all, is there a nuanced direction you want to head on that? And I said, well, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, or that the Bible is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. She's all, I don't, pick, pick one, I don't care. And I was put in my place. She was a card-carrying atheist who was ready to discuss and debate any nuanced area of Christianity. I said, how about we debate whether or not Christianity is true? She said, great. How about you go first? I'll see where you're heading, and then I'll pick up what I'm going to say as you go along. We'll go back and forth with the rebuttal. We'll have closing remarks. We'll look over at the jury and see who won. Wow. You've done this before. And I've never lost. So I went first, then she went. I gave her a rebuttal to what she said. She gave her a rebuttal to what I said. I gave my closing remark. It came time for her closing remark, and she didn't say anything. Her mouth was shut. And I was reminded of the words of the late great presuppositional apologist Greg Bonson, who said, it is not our job as Christians to open people's hearts. It's our job to close their mouths in love as we speak the truth in love and we allow God to be God in the conversation. So I looked over at the jury, and I didn't ask the jury who won because I didn't care what they thought. I said, are you ready to repent and place your trust in Christ? Today's the day of salvation. And they all just single-handedly, they just walked out of the restaurant. They left, except for one guy, one guy, he looked over at me, and he said, are you kidding me right now? That was awesome. <laughs> he said, listen, I watch you every single day, and to see you do this in person, man, that was a highlight of my life. I said, man, where were you 35 minutes ago? <laughs> and he said, man, I had your back. And I said, yeah, like way back. Then he said these words. He said, listen, God was honored here today. Now, none of them asked to repeat a prayer after me. Nobody asked to follow me on my Facebook or my Twitter. Nobody asked for my website, livingwaters.com. <laughs> but I was faithful with the message. God, listen, he's not asking you to be fruitful He's commanding you to be faithful. And even when you're faithless, he's faithful so you can get back up, get back in the race. 
It's not about you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the apostle Paul knew it. And man, if I could just slap you with my words, because I would never slap some of you guys are really big. <laughs> wouldn't slap you with my hand. But I'm going to slap you with words that are true. But remember, these are just words. Unless they're true. This isn't just noise going through the, the air here, and then it grabs a hold of you, and you now make a decision where you know, listen, these are the very words of God. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus said. Sanctify them by your word. Your truth is word. Your word is truth, right? In Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you to become a fisher of men. That's great, right? So God's not looking for ability, but availability, right? The best ability is availability. And when you make yourself available to him who is omnipotent, right? It means he's all-powerful. What a, what a word. You make yourself available to a God who can do anything according to his nature. And I think this world is yet to see what God will do. Henry Valerie, the shoe salesman, Henry Valerie, rather, said these words to where the D.L. Moody, the shoe salesman, responded to it when he was in a hotel. He said these words, the world is yet to see what God will do to and through and with and by the person who is consecrated to their God. This world is yet to see what God can do with an individual who simply says, it's not about me. It's about you. Peter stepped out of the boat. He walked on water. Yeah, but he sank. Yeah, but he walked on water. That's not on your resume. And he wasn't thinking, all right, you know what? I'm going to defy the laws of physics at this moment and step out. No, it was, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. I will go anywhere as long as it's forward. And I have a motto. If I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail by falling forward. And I think the thing that separates me, and I'm going to give you some insight into my life, I believe, I really believe that I have done some grotesque, sinful activities that you guys have never even heard of that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. But God. Those two words conjunctured together changes the trajectory of where you're heading. But God. I don't, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what drugs you've taken. I don't care the people you've slept with or the animals. I don't care. But God. But God. I had a guy come up to me and say, I'm struggling with bestiality. And I said, but God, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. He's slow to anger. He's rich in compassion and in love. He's merciful to those who need it. But God, I can't. Right, he's not asking you to. He wants to do all the work, so therefore nobody can go like this when they stand in eternity. It always has been. It always will be about God. 
You have nothing to impress God with. He's not impressed with your successes. He's not moved by your failures, but God. And God will do whatever it takes to make his name great in your life. And sometimes you come to the end of your rope only to look up. And sometimes God puts you on your back so that you look up. And I don't know where you're at, but maybe you you just need to look up. The Apostle Paul knew this, and he just looked up. And the thing that separates me is when I fail, honestly, I just get back up. People wallow. People get depressed. People take drugs. They drink. They go watch movies. They head the other direction. I get back up as soon as I fail, and I'm running 100 miles per hour towards Christ. Why? Because where am I going to go? He alone holds the words to eternal life. So I have this placard, right? This placard is hung up inside my house, and it says, do the next thing. Do the next thing. When I fail, when I blow it, when I mess up, when I succeed, when there's a triumph, it doesn't matter. I see that placard, I go, I need to do the next thing. What is that next thing? Acknowledge God right now. Go. Just go. Go forward. We can't waste time because there's no time to waste. And when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't call men that were able, but men that were available. And the grotesque things that I've done has caused me to be driven into the shower, down on the floor, fully clothed, down in a fetal position with hot, scalding water hitting me in the face, sucking my thumb as a grown man. True. Turn it off, and I change up, and I get those clothes, and I go, old man rags, let's go. I mean, the the old man is dead, but I know where he's buried. And sometimes I, I tend to scurry back that way. But then I get right back in the race because it's a race. And if I can encourage you, if you're going to catch one message that I teach during this time, catch tonight's message. It's the final farewell. It's the words that I would share with my kids if I knew I was going to die tomorrow. If I was able to preach my last sermon, if I was able to preach at my funeral, this is the message that I would preach. It's tonight. But here we have the Apostle Paul being courageous, even when he doesn't feel courageous. And if you're like that, listen to these words. Hudson Taylor said, all of God's giants have actually been weak men, but they did great things for God because they simply believed that God would be with them. You're strong. Remember Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, where it talks about the adulterous, idolatrous woman. And the men that fell her way were all strong men. I'm not surprised when I hear of a man that falls and fails. Every public failure that we hear about is the result of a thousand private failings. We're going to talk about how not to be defeated on Sunday morning. I believe there's going to be some set freeness there. But listen to this and describing what it means to be courageous. An act of courage is not necessarily done by those who feel brave when they do it. 
True courage is he who feels the fear, and yet he does it anyways. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the conquering of it. Ask a firefighter who runs into a burning building. Feel brave? You could die. He does it anyways. And we look at these people, they're heroes. Why? Because they are overcoming obstacles that stops you and I. The measure of a man is determined according to some and what it takes to stop him. What does it take to stop you? What does it take to stop you from running a race? What does it take? There's no giving up in the Christian realm. You cannot give up. Don't give up. Don't let up. Don't shut up until you've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. Your singular mission here on earth is to know God and to make him known. Allow your failures to be a soapbox in which you preach from. Yeah, look, I am a blow it. But he's going nowhere. <laughs> he's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. He's not going to leave me this way. He loves me too much to keep me in the gutter. The highways, the byways, the gutterways, we serve a God who knows not how to go the other way from you. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't take our eyes off of us. In fact, he doesn't even blink because he'd be taking his eyes off of us. And he wants you to know that it's not about you. Get back in the word. And if you're not meditating on God's word, you're going to believe lies are truth. And you're lied to all day long. Every erected billboard, every commercial you'll watch, almost every person you talk to, there's going to be an element of, hmm, just because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen people. And the more you know your God, the more you can do great exploits. As Daniel says, they that know their God shall do great exploits. So make it your boast. Make it your aim. I'm going to know God. I have a pastor friend. I say to him, hey, I'm going to know God better than you know God. His thoughts for me outnumber the sand of the sea. Ten to the 25th power, somebody have counted that 100 million billion 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 listen i mean, that goes over my head i don't understand that i have a very simple vernacular a very simple language i'm very simple i got my ears checked recently i need a hearing aid i had my eyes checked i need glasses a lot of times i pretend like i'm reading notes i go no i just see certain words that are highlighted and that's okay i'm graciously getting older and i'm excited to get older Every ache and pain, every sciatic issue, walking up the steps, feeling the joints and the, the pain in the knees. I'm 47 years old, but I feel like I'm still 17 years old. But I have a glorious body waiting for me, right? Six foot six with a hairy chest. A body created just for Spence. I don't understand everything that's going on around me, but I don't need to. We hide behind our excuses. We hide behind our handicaps. And we forget that those handicaps are gifts from God. So that you don't boast in your own power and authority and might and eloquence. Thirteen of the fourteen judges found in the book of Judges in the Old Testament all had a handicap. They all had a legitimate excuse why they were not the person for the job. We get inconvenienced in this life. 
as we pursue life, liberty, and happiness. In the words of David Brainerd, the great missionary who died at the age of 29 of tuberculosis, his words mean very little to us when he said, Lord, help me not to loiter on my way to heaven. We need to lay aside the weight, the sin, the friends, the job, the TV show that so easily entangles us. We're just running a race with endurance, a race that God has predetermined for us to walk in. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that word workmanship is the Greek word poema, that you are God's poema, his poem. You are the expression of God's heart, the symphony of his praise, the trophy of his grace, on display where angels are looking and scratching their head. Are you going to give up on this guy now at least? Nope. I can do so much more now because he realizes he's a big failure because he who's forgiven much loves much. God can use your failures and make it seem as if they were always meant to be. And here's Paul's personal attributes on his marvelous and magnificent resume. I have no eloquence of speech. I have weakness, I have fear, and I have much trembling. Listen, we do not get to choose what is true. We only get to choose what we do about it. We get upset at microwaves because they take too long. We have closets full of clothes, yet we complain we have nothing to wear. We have refrigerators full of food. That we crumble, we grumble that there's nothing to eat. John Piper, he said, Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price, and what lies before you is a stewardship from the owner for the owner. How many people you know pray for bad service at a restaurant? Why would you do that, Mark? What an opportunity to talk about grace, God's unmerited favor. The tip is expected, and no tip is expected when there's bad service. What an opportunity to talk about grace. Food, God's going to supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You're not at that restaurant for food. Do you realize that? You're at that restaurant to bring glory to God, to walk in the work which he's prepared beforehand, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, to demonstrate what mercy and grace is to an undeserved world. So you can look over at the server when they drop off the food and say, listen, I'm about ready to thank God for this food. Do you need prayer for anything? I've had people, waiters, waitresses, break down in tears just because I asked them if they wanted to pray. Why do you do what you do? Why do you go where you go. I went to Walmart recently and purchased a $60 suit, right? A $60 suit. Throwing gospel tracts inside the pockets. But if they didn't have my $60 suit, I don't get upset because I'm not there for the suit. 
I'm there to walk with God, for God to direct and lead me and guide me with his eyes. I take refuge under the shadow of his wings. Imagine what God can do with an individual who says, my life really is not my own. Who gets excited when a telemarketer calls? It's an opportunity to share the gospel, and if you mess up, just hang up. Right? They'll call back. When you get a knock on the door, it's a salesman. It's a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness. Everybody down. Dim the lights. And we do this army crawl out of the living room, on into the kitchen, hoping that they leave. And God says, you don't go to them, so I brought them to you. And then you send them away. Every time our heart beats, it is the drumbeat of our own funeral march. From the moment we were born, we begin to head towards this thing called death, our last enemy. Life's not about you. It's not about your job. It's not about your trophy wife. It's not about your kids. You have cancer? Don't waste it. Use it to the glory of God. Your child is wayward, not your child. It's not your job to raise Christian children. It's your job to model what a Christian is for your children. Salvation belongs to him. We have no more excuses because all of your excuses that you have have been strategically, specifically placed by the omnipotent one so that you trust him for the result. hard walking by a newspaper stand without putting a quarter in and then a gospel track in each newspaper. Just leave the results to God. And I believe that when you make yourself available to God, he will open up doors for you. I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with uh, John Travolta and George Clooney, the race car driver Jimmy Johnson, Holly Hunter, Abraham Lincoln, I have a friend that shared the gospel with Brad Pitt on the making of the movie Moneyball. Gave him a gospel track. Gave him this track right here, the money, the million-dollar bill. Gave him one of these. Brad Pitt, he thanked him for it, accepted it, and then had him fired. So what? You realize, I mean, you are invincible in your job. You have a life insurance plan that is out of this world, right? Nothing can happen. Do you realize that? Not one hair can fall from your head unless God says so. He knows all about you. He knows all about his creation. He knows what's happening in the center of Pluto. I was driving up here with my son. I said, son, do you realize that God knows what is in the center of the planet Pluto? Is it still a planet? It keeps coming in and out. But God knows. He's concerned with the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Is the hair on your head numbered? For some of you, you know, it's not that. I'm not looking at anybody. We're not getting eye contact right now, brother. I'm laughing with you. But if God knows the hair of head on your hairs on, on your head and, and, and on your back, right? 
if God knows this, then he also knows what makes you tick. He knows everything about you. He knows what makes you cry. He knows your concerns. He knows your struggles and your temptations. He knows. He really knows. We're going to talk about tonight on how much he knows and how that word knows is an intimate word. The same way Adam knew his wife when he conceived of a child, that's how intimate God's knowledge is with his children. With the word of God, we underline and we highlight, but rarely do we come across people that will claim them for themselves. If you really believe in Scripture to be true, man, we would we'd be meditating on it a little bit more, myself included. Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good. And if all things work together for good, we'll take that to its logical conclusion. There's really no such thing as bad news because the judge of the universe has seen fit for that bad thing to be in my life. That God can, within his wise counsel of the triunity up in heaven, can say, you need this. You need this cancer. You need your spouse to commit adultery. How about having a lofty view of God's sovereignty, of trusting that God is in heaven, he does what he pleases, and he can control all things by the word of his power. In the beginning, there was just God, and then he condescended to make man. It says that he created man out of nothing. It wasn't the fact that there was God and then there was nothing around him. There was an empty space. There was a universe around him. No, there was nothing. God just, he filled everything. And then he had to humble himself. He had to extract himself, if you would, in order to create a nothingness, in order to create man. God has been thinking about us before there was this thing called time that a lot of us are handcuffed to. Since all of time, before time, and all of eternity past, he's been thinking of his children. I think the issues in my life are so small that God doesn't see them. Listen, all of big issues are small to God. All of small issues are small to God. What's going on in your life? It's no match for God. It's not God versus Satan. It's not an equal match. Listen, it's just God. And in the end, it'll just be God. He's the ever-ending oasis in which we will fall down. Listen, if you want to hear God's word, then you need to read his word. If you want to hear God's word out loud, then you need to read his word out loud. And a lot of times we say, listen, if God gives me a voice, well, then I will do something. You don't need a voice when you have a verse. And God has given us the verse, and he's given us commands, and he said, go into the highways and the byways and compel people to come. Open up your mouth. They won't believe. No, listen, I've come down to deliver them. They will be delivered. And he wants to use you. So we need to stop with the excuses. A church that is waiting for sinners to visit their building, it's a lot like the police waiting for criminals to visit their station. It doesn't happen. 
I'll leave you with these final words from William Booth. I'm referring to people who say, I'm not called to share the gospel. That's somebody else's responsibility. He says, you're not called? Is that what you're saying? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him. Hear him bid you to go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Just words, unless they're true. And if they're true, if it's true that Christianity is not about you, this world is not about you, your job is not about you, the people who you rub elbows with is not about you, but it's about making him great, putting him on display, then you need to get over yourself. You cannot impress people with Jesus when you're still trying to impress them with yourself. There is no such thing as a cool Christian. You're not cool. He is. It's about him. Put him on display. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see, my friend. Come and behold. Come and partake. Amen? Father, we thank you that it is all about you, that it has never been about us. And we ask that as we continually progress on our journey here on earth, through this day, through this weekend, that we would be quick to get back in the race, to get back in the battle, and to trust you alone to glorify yourself. So we finish the way we started, that no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much we kick and scream, may we never be out of your will. In Jesus' name.